for uh, those of you that are joining us again from uh, first and second service, welcome back. And if you're here just for uh, the first time, I think I'm on here. Um, aren't you glad to be here? Yeah? This has already been a, a wonderful Sunday, and I know that uh, we're in for a treat uh, this evening. I did want to remind you, and uh, uh, Dr. Lutzer is going to be able to share about a few of the books back there. Just remind you, we still do have books in the back if you are interested. Some had asked about that. Uh, we're encouraging you to go back there and uh, pick one up, uh, take a look at some of those. I think that they'll be a great blessing to you. Uh, after this morning, this uh, passage was just uh, kept coming back into my mind, Revelation 21. It said, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Is that amazing? What I was thankful for this morning was the reminder that uh, the hope that we have is not here on this earth, and it's not in some temporary fix, but it's in Christ alone. Amen? And that uh, we can have an answer for those storms. That was a blessing this morning. And Dr. Lutzer, would you come now and uh, share what the Lord's laid on your heart for this evening? Let's give him a welcome. I was blessed this morning. I will uh, encourage you. you to share about some of these books here in just a moment. But can I pray for you? Please, All right. please. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity once again to come to your word and to be reminded of those things that we need to hold as true, to focus on your ways, your thoughts uh, instead of our own, to be transformed, not just slightly moved, but changed completely. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would open our eyes, change our direction, even as we hear this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, what a delight it is to be with you this evening, and I'm, am I being heard well? Can you hear me all over? Because uh, it's important that you hear it. You know, during the singing, I remained seated, and the reason for that is because I'm standing now, and, uh, <laughs> you know, once you get my age, I looked in the mirror the other day, and I said to my lovely wife, Rebecca, I said, honey, I don't look 77, do I? She said, no, you don't, but you used to. <laughs> you know, um, there's the other side of America called uh, Florida, where I was last week. You know, Boca Raton, for example, that's a place where retirees, that's a place where old people go to visit their parents. And we were told about a story about a widower who was looking across the table at a widow and said to her, would you marry me? She thought about it for about five seconds and said yes. The next day, he could not remember what, how she answered. 
But he had her phone number, and so he called and said, we had a nice evening together. I asked whether or not you would marry me, but I don't remember how you answered. And she said, well, I said yes with all my heart. But she said, I'm really glad you called back because I forget who it is that asked me. <laughs> so that, what, that's what happens when you get old. Uh, regarding the books, you know, I don't mind saying a word about my books. Remember Proverbs chapter 32? Blessed is he who tooteth his own horn, for if he doth not do it, no one else shall. When I was a baby sleeping in a crib, the pastor's wife came over and she said to my mother in German, he will be the preacher. So this is my story. Talks about all the providence of God, all the answers that my parents prayed. You know, they were Germans. They came over to Canada independently. My father asked if he could walk my mother home about a half mile. She worked from the church. Their first date, he asks whether or not she would marry him. And uh, she said she'd think about it, but in three weeks they were married. They lived together for 77 years. My father died at 106, my mother at 103. My parents lived so long that I'm sure until my father died, all of their friends in heaven thought that they just didn't make it. You know, they said, <laughs> where are the Lutzers? So I wrote this book. It is really a book about God's providence, unusually answered prayers. I mean, born in Saskatchewan, Canada, how did I become the pastor of Moody Church? A series of miraculous providences. And so, and by the way, it's written so that even men can read it. <laughs> it has 18 pages of pictures. <laughs> and then a new one, a practical guide for praying parents. We self-published this because we needed it quickly. At Moody Church, we, we had a prayer meeting uh, for uh, all of January one time on, for pops, parents of prodigals, and what God taught us about prodigal children and how to pray for them. A practical guide for praying parents. My wife, I mentioned this morning in one of the sessions, awesome Bible verses if you have children age 6 to 12 and, or grandchildren, be sure to get that. One minute after you die, uh, God has used this book mightily. You might want to know what it's like one minute after you die. Well, here it is. <laughs> it's a preview of your final destination. And it talks both about heaven and hell and all the rest. One other and that's what I'm speaking on tonight, The Church in Babylon. This is my latest book on all the issues, immigration, transgenderism, five false gospels in the evangelical church. All that is here in this book, The Church in Babylon. Now, before I begin tonight, I need to tell you that as a boy growing up in Canada, we're just being very personal here, I went to see the first Billy Graham film. Now, I was about 10 or 12, and I went with my siblings to see Mr. Texas. It was a black and white film, but I came home hooked on Billy. My generation of teenagers was into Elvis, and I was into Billy, and I tend to think that I made the better choice, actually. Billy used to, when he was alive and preaching as a young man, he'd stand six foot two in his socks. One day I was on a plane and a woman said, you know, you have a blue sock and a red sock. Your socks don't match. I said, oh, yes, they do, because I go by thickness. <laughs> a 
So what I want to do tonight is to give you a couple of lines of what it might be if Billy Graham were here in Salem. I know that he preached in uh, Portland, but uh, just pretend that this is a younger Billy Graham and that he's speaking to a stadium full of people, and we'll see how this comes out. The problems and the perplexities that we face as a nation seem to be almost overwhelming. Recently, one of our leaders, speaking to a group of students at Johns Hopkins University, said that we may well be living in the most confusing, bewildering, and perplexing hour of history. All of our leaders agree that the world seems to be plunging headlong toward disaster. However, this evening, it is our privilege to be here in Salem. As I've traveled around the world, I've met scores of young people from this church founded so many years ago. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come, hundreds of you. You simply get up out of your seats, and I want you to come. And for the many of you who have joined us tonight by television, we'd like to send you some literature. We'd like to send you a book that has been a blessing to tens of thousands of people around the world, written by Pastor Lutza. <laughs> Just write to me, Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's all the address you need. Just Billy Graham, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now until this same time next week, goodbye, and may the Lord bless you real good. Well, I know that you're here to hear me speak on when the state becomes God. And by the way, I had such wonderful fellowship with your pastor and his staff. You guys, I hope that you understand how fortunate you are Amen. to have a church this vibrant. You know, holding to the truth, not swerving with all the culture, and uh, actually believing in the power of the gospel, I mean, wonderful. When the state becomes God. If you study church history, you discover that the relationship between church and state has always been one of conflict. When in the early centuries, when Rome said that you had to worship Caesar, the reason was this, and you must grasp it. The idea was that it is impossible for you to be a good citizen of Rome unless you're unified by religion. As a matter of fact, then the Christians who wouldn't confess Caesar as Lord, you remember many of them were put to death. After the time of Constantine, when religion now is the unified, that is to say when Christianity becomes the glue that holds church and state together, the same thing was true. That's why heretics were burned at the stake. That's why the Donatists who believed in baptism by immersion were, were rubbed out and and Luther, during Luther's time, Martin Luther did not have freedom of religion. When he stood there in Worms, and by the way, if some of you want to come with us on that cruise, you can go to moodymedia.org, moodymedia.org, and find out about it, the Rhine River in uh, October. We're actually going to be in Worms where Luther made his famous declaration. But when he stood there and said, my conscience is taken captive by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant, so help me God, amen. Here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anderes. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. There was no freedom of religion. Charles V uh, said that Luther should be killed. 
Now, he wasn't for some interesting reasons, but the idea of freedom of religion and freedom of conscience is a relatively new idea. The idea that in the United States we could have a constitution that unifies us instead of a religion that unifies us is an anomaly. Under the days of Hitler, of course, in Germany, and we'll be talking about him on the cruise, I thought I'd throw that in, uh, under Germany, what Hitler became the state. As a matter of fact, you homeschoolers should know that homeschooling is still outlawed in Germany. You know what uh, Hitler actually said? He said, you clothe your children, you feed your children, but their souls will belong to the Reich. And today we clothe our children, we feed our children, we send them to school, and their souls belong to technology and to the Internet. But anyway, it's always been a problem. In Islam, Islam is a political religion. And that's why it is in Islam there is no freedom of religion. As you well know, if you convert, the answer is death. So always throughout history, this idea either of religion taking away our freedoms or the state taking away our freedoms has always been one of conflict. And certainly that is true in America today. Now what I'd like you to do is to take your Bibles and let's turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar puts up a, an image, and I'm going to assume that you know this story. He puts up an image in the plain of Dura. By the way, archaeologists think that they might have actually found the base of that image. But what he says is, and then he lists five or six or seven different instruments. I'm giving it to you in summary form. He said, when you hear these instruments, fall down and worship. And he says, if you don't, you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. How does a state become God? Two ways. One way is through laws. That's why the issue of the Supreme Court of the United States is so critically important. Because one way is through laws. Nebuchadnezzar is the lawgiver, and he says, this is now the law of the land. Everybody bow down and worship. And secondly, with stiff, unbelievable stiff penalties if you don't obey. And that's why it is so important for us to realize, show me your laws, I will show you your God. If there is no law above the Supreme Court of the United States, then the Supreme Court becomes God. If there's no law above you, you become your own God. But the fact is this, that the God that we serve becomes the lawgiver. And in this instance, Nebuchadnezzar said, what I want you to do is to bow down or else. And today I could give one example or and another of the way in which the state and laws are beginning to intrude on freedom of worship and freedom of conscience, and they are saying, bow down or else. And I'll be mentioning a few in a moment. Now what you have to do is to remember that there were three guys who would not bow. Daniel, of course, wouldn't bow either, but he's not part of the story. He was probably on his way somewhere else, visiting over the weekend, so he's not there. But there are three guys Shake the bed, make the bed, and into bed you go. Sometimes known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three guys were known to the king. They were at his visors. And so somebody tattles on them and says, Oh, king, 
There are three Jews here in Babylon. They are not bowing. And the king calls them in and gives them a redo. He says, maybe you weren't reading your emails. You may have not gotten the memo. So he says, let's understand this, and I'm going to give you another chance. So we pick up the story now in chapter 3, and we begin at verse 16 after... He says, if you do not bow, you'll be thrown into the furnace and it will be seven times hotter. Which is an expression for saying it's going to be as hot as you can possibly make it. So that's what they are faced with. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we are serving, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. Everybody silent now. Everybody awake. This is one of the greatest expressions of faith in all the Bible. But if not, let it be known unto you, O king, we will not bow down to your God and worship the golden image that you have made. When Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this, they were not absolutely certain that they were going to be delivered from the furnace. They were not absolutely certain that the fourth man would walk among them. But they said either way, they had two convictions that I want you to remember. Number one, they trusted the promises of God. Perhaps they were acquainted with Isaiah who said that when you walk through the fire, I'm going to be there and the river will not overflow you. That doesn't mean, by the way, that Christians have always been delivered from fire. We'll give you some examples. What it does mean is that Israel is going to survive no matter what happens as a nation. But still, they knew that God was with them. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whatever promises they had, they believed in the promises of God and his ultimate victory. But there's a second conviction that they had that's very important, and that is they trusted the providence of God. They said, we entrust ourselves to you, O Lord God, and no matter which way it falls out, we are going to go on believing no matter what. We believe, O King, that our God is able, and we even believe that he will, but if he doesn't, we will not bow. Are you comfortable with the unpredictability of God's promises and God's providences? We don't know certain things. Rebecca and I have a friend, a mother, who died a month or two ago, leaving three little boys behind. She died of cancer. I don't know of anyone who has prayed for more than she was, but blessed are those who say, we believe, O oh God, that you are able to heal and deliver from cancer, and we believe, Lord, that you will, but if you don't, we will go on believing in your hidden providences and goodness anyway. Blessed is the person who can say that. We can't understand the way in which God works. 12th chapter of the book of Acts. James is killed with a sword by Herod. Peter is sleeping in the prison. He's supposed to die the next day. 
what in the world is this guy doing sleeping in the prison if he's to die the next day? The only thing I can think of is he wanted to arrive in heaven rested. I mean, you know, if you're going to see the place and so forth, you want to be well rested. He's sleeping, and what does God do? God sends an angel to deliver him. One person dies, the other is rescued. One person is healed, the other isn't. But both, both can be people of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, that great story of faith, was not written to teach us how to do miracles. It was written to show us that we can be a hero of faith whether we see a miracle or not. After it delineates all of the things about Moses and Joshua, in the middle of verse 35, there's a break, and it talks about all these miracles, and then it says, and others. And others were not delivered. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, in deserts and caves and holes in the ground, and they were sawn in sunder, and, and all of those ugly things that happened. There was no miracles for them. My wife and I have been to Rome, and we've walked through the Circus Maximus, where it used to be, where Christians were thrown to the lions, and there was no angel that came and closed their mouths as an angel came for Daniel. So the Christian trusts the providence of God. We don't pretend to understand. It's like trying to read the providence of God, like trying to read through a message through an envelope where you see certain words, but you can't make it out. But you believe and you trust God no matter what. And that kind of faith is very precious to God. The trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto glory and honor and praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where did these men get the strength to not bow through the promises of God and trusting the providence of God no matter the outcome? The state would not interfere with their consciences. They would die rather than compromise. Well, all that is only the introduction. I hope we weren't planning to go somewhere tonight. <laughs> what I'd like to do now is to give you four or five implications for the United States of America, and we'll apply this to where we are at. Number one, please remember this, that um, persecution and the intrusion of the state should be expected. It should be expected. Peter wrote in chapter 1, verse 4, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 4, he said this, he said, don't think it's strange when some fiery trial is to try, as if some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice rather that you are participants in Christ's suffering. For when the Lord is revealed, his glory shall be revealed, and you'll be revealed with him. The church has always, except for the West with its freedoms, Historically, the church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism, and the pagans have always been pounding against the church and insisting that people not live according to their consciences. Today, we are not asked to bow before a golden image, but we are asked to bow before a God, and that God's name is tolerance. And tolerance means this, that if you are pro-life, you hate women. If you believe in strong borders like I do, you're a racist. If you're opposed to same-sex marriage, you're a bigot. 
And on and on it goes in this political... In fact, we should be so tolerant that we should not even stand against Islam's intolerance. And we should give in to Islam every way and every time we can. We see this much more clearly in Europe than we do the United States, but it's coming here as well. You do not uh, oppose Islam's intolerance because that only shows that you are intolerant. My wife and I have a friend in Tennessee. Now, Tennessee is the Bible Belt, right? You Americans, you know that. And uh, this apparently is not the Bible Belt, as I understand it. (laughs) It may be a belt, but it's not the Bible Belt. But here's Tennessee, and there's a woman friend of ours who opposed textbooks. I was shown a textbook that is being used in one state of these United States, that has 64 pages on how wonderful Islam is. Islam liberates women, Islam has done this, it's architecture, it's history. 14 pages on Christianity. Christianity is imperialistic. Christianity enslaves women. You know, the white privilege has put put people under oppression, and on and on. So she opposed it, and a Muslim on the committee said this, I'm going to argue and we're going to make sure that every textbook is pro-Islamic and anyone who opposes us, I wrote this down, is going to be called intolerant, Islamophobic, and racist. And in America, that's about the worst thing that you can be called today. So my dear friends, let us remember that we are living at a time when we are expecting the intrusion through laws, yes, but also through culture, to infringe on our own religious consciences, and we're supposed to roll over and play dead so that we can be called loving, and any opposition is against us. That's where we are going. Did you hear what happened in Canada one week ago? My great dominion. By the way, I am now an American citizen I uh, became a citizen about 12 or 13 years ago. Thank, thank you so much for welcoming me into your country. But the point is, did you hear what happened? There's a cu- couple that is objecting to their 14-year-old son to become transgender. He wants to become a woman, and so it has to do with the injection of hormones and so forth. And his parents objected to him. And the court in Canada called it child abuse. And he has a gag order. And you can read about this, that he cannot speak about this. And if he does, he can be arrested. The intrusion of the state into the consciences of parents, into the consciences of God's people and other people, is happening literally everywhere. And I'm saying today, Don't be surprised. You know, years ago, I actually predicted that that was going to happen because there was an article in a psychological newspaper, and it was called an article about the intolerance personality disorder. And I predicted that the day would come when homeschooling parents, for example, might have their children taken away because if you don't teach them that uh, same-sex relationships are good and right and honorable, if you don't teach that, you could be declared incompetent as a parent because you have an intolerance personality disorder. Don't be too surprised if that's coming somewhere near you. 
expect it. Once humanism is on a roll, it stops at nowhere. I was in China in 1985, and we had a guide there. And you know that in China, your guides are basically uh, members of their secret community. But anyway, we're talking to her about freedom of religion, and she said, of course there's freedom of religion in China. She said, you can be as religious as you want to be within your own mind. In other words, we can't control the mind yet. Now, mind you, if you go to church and believe the Bible, that's something else. But you can be religious as long as it is intensely personal because we can't control your mind yet. Expect it. It's coming. And it's not good. Secondly, that's the first lesson. The second lesson is we must learn to stand alone. If I were Billy Graham, I'd say alone. We must learn to stand alone. Wait a moment. There were a thousand Jews that went from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, 10,000 actually because they were under judgment and they came there to Babylon and that actually whole story is the basis of the book, The Church in Babylon. But there were about 10,000. Where were they? The king had said that everybody should gather at the plain in Dura. I tend to think that they bowed. I don't want to be too critical of them because you and I don't know what we would do if we had children and we were told that if you don't bow, you know, you're going to be killed. But I tend to think that most of them capitulated under the pressure. And throughout history, when there's persecution, there have been some people who have done that. And maybe I have time tonight to tell you one story. I'll do that a little later on in the message. But the point is, we need to train people, and especially our college students, to stand alone because the cultural currents in our university are so powerful regarding matters of sexuality, regarding matters of race, that the kids who are Christians can hardly stand against the tide. I know that we don't look that old, and of course my lovely wife Rebecca couldn't be here this weekend because of uh, the death of a friend and so forth, but she'll be joining me tomorrow. But she and I have two children, two grandchildren, two grandsons, I should say, in college. We're not so afraid that they will be talked out of their faith. We are more afraid that they will be mocked out of their faith. You believe that old book? You believe that old morality? You should be ashamed of yourself. And the church today is being shamed into silence. And our problem is that we are teaching our young people, but we are not training them to stand against the culture because in our universities and colleges, they probably will have to stand alone. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood alone without a lot of support from their community. There's a third lesson, and that is this. We must fear God more than we do the fire. We must fear God more than we do the furnace and the fire. Now, I have to tell you that throughout history, Christians have been burned. I mean, literally burned. And as I already emphasized, there was no fourth man who delivered them. You know, Hus in Germany, John Hus preached the gospel in Prague. He went to the Council of Constance in Germany, 
and he was there, and the emperor Sigismund said, you can come to this conference and I will give you safe passage. You'll be able to go home. So Hus did. When he got to the conference, the emperor changed his mind and said that he didn't have to keep his word to a heretic. And so Hus was taken and he was burned at the stake. His books were burned. And you always wonder, what about this stake thing? It's because you were tied to the stake and then the fire under you was lit. That's what it means to die at the stake. And Hus was taken there. They put a crown on his head that said, you belong to the devil. We commit your soul to the devil. Hus said, I commit my soul to the living God and so forth. And in the Czech language, the name Hus means goose. As a matter of fact, he used to sign his letter, the goose. And before he died, he said this, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arise and him you will not silence. Now, if you do the math, 14, 14, 14, 15, 17, 102 years later, and when it comes to math, always remember that seven out of six people have trouble with math. But I figured it out. 102 years later, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, and Luther believed that he was the fulfillment of Huss's prophecy. And even today, 500 years later, we talk about they cooked his goose, don't we? But Huss was burned at the stake. And throughout history, there's always been that persecution. Now, I hate to mention the tour again, but this is a promise. It'll be the last time. If you come to the pre-tour before we get on the ship to go to Amsterdam, and you come to the pre-tour in Switzerland, I will take you to the Lamont River where Felix Mons was drowned and all of the other rebaptizers. They were drowned because they believed in ba believer's baptism. Oh, there's nothing going on tonight. I've got lots of time. The pastor said, take your time. <laughs> you have to understand, infant baptism was a sign of the unity of Christendom. So when Charlemagne was crowned uh, by the Pope in St. Peter's on Christmas Day in the year 800, he declared that any parents who do not have their children baptized as infants must be put to death. And later on, the very same thing happened after the Reformation when the rebaptizers called Anabaptists were drowned because they believed that one should be baptized upon profession of faith. And the authorities said, this is breaking up the unity of Christendom. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I venture to say. I was going to say I bet, but I don't bet. I venture to say you've never heard before. More Christians were massacred after the Reformation on the basis of the issue of baptism than died in the early centuries of Rome. Whole villages in Europe of men, women, and children were massacred because they had this crazy belief that you should be baptized upon profession of faith like this church does. So throughout history, let it just be very clear to us that there were some of these dear people, you read their stories about how they were asked to dig their own graves and they were buried in graves that they dug and how their children were persecuted. And yet they remained strong because they feared God more than the flames 
They feared God more than they did drowning in the rivers and lakes of Europe. Always remember, the price of freedom has been very high. Number four, and thanks for taking notes. God will bless you in unpredictable ways. <laughs> Things are not what they appear to be. Things are not what they appear to be. In 2009, Rebecca and I were on a cruise to Turkey, and we were visiting the seven churches of Revelation. And there are no churches. There are only mosques. And previously in Turkey, I'd had a very devout guide who said to me, in effect, Islam's ability to replace the church, we would say to crush it, is proof of its superiority as a religion. So if you want to know whether or not Islam is right, go to Egypt where there are 3,000 churches that are mosques today. Or you could even come to Chicago where there are churches that are mosques today. And that is proof that Islam is superior to Christianity because it's been able to crush it. This troubled me deeply because it made Jesus look weak. And I went back to the ship and I said, Oh God, give me wisdom as to what these non-existent churches have to say to the American church. And on the back of an envelope, eight or nine lessons came to me and that was the small seed from which my book on Islam grew. It's called The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent. But one of the things I realized is that um, just because Islam seems to be winning and humanism seems to be winning, things are not what they appear to be. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Antichrist is ruling. All who dwell upon the face of the earth shall worship him. You talk about the state becoming God. All who dwell upon the face of the earth shall worship him, except those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. But he has worldwide dominion and worldwide worship. The state has finally become God of very God. All right? That's chapter 13. Now let's go to chapter 15. And I beheld as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire... And them who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not glorify thee and glorify thy name? Did I quote it too quickly? Chapter 13, it says that they are put to death with the sword. All Christians put to death with a sword. That's interesting. The sword has always been important to Islam. When you go to Turkey and you go to the museum there in Constantinople and you see this museum to Islam, the, the place that gets the most attention are all of the swords of Muhammad. But anyway, so here you have the sword killing people. Chapter 13, two chapters later, and I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and them who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name. Chapter 13, Antichrist is winning. Sign up because he's able to crush all other opposition except, of course, the elect, but he's able to crush all the other opposition. He's the winner. Chapter 13, chapter 15, the saints are in heaven. They are the winners. And a couple of chapters later, the Antichrist is in hell. Things, and thank you. This morning I tried to teach you that saying amen was still legal. Say amen when it's still legal. 
Yeah. The simple fact is that it may seem as if humanism is winning. It may seem as if the relentless laws and the cultural streams are crushing freedom and, and winning, but in the end, God wins and you win. Things are not what they appear to be. Well, here's something else for you to remember, my dear friend. And that is this, that um, it is not necessary to win on earth in order to win in heaven. I've already implied that, haven't I? It's not necessary for us to win on earth in order to win in heaven. So when you go about all of the battles that you are facing, remember this, life is short and eternity is very long. As a matter of fact, eternity is so long that when you think about it, if you begin to live in light of eternity, you will be making decisions in light of eternity and not in light of time because of the fact that you want to be a winner in the life to come. During the days of Hitler, I think it was Niemöller who was told, you should not withstand Hitler like you did. Fascinating story that I won't go into. But he said, you should not, you should not confront him like that. What does that look like on earth? Niemöller says, the question isn't how it looks on earth. The question ultimately is, how does it look in heaven? And you and I should live with that mindset all the time. What does this look like? In heaven. One of the things I hope to do in this book is to force Christians to think of drawing the line. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were able to do some things within their consciences. They were able to serve the king. They were able to even have their own food, and the king allowed them to, and, and they had new names given, Babylonian names of all things. And they could endure that, but there came a point at which they said, we can do this, 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 but we can't do that, that, that. And I want to encourage you. A person who teaches um, in the school system in Chicago told me, he was told that it's not enough for you to simply tolerate same-sex marriage. If you don't celebrate it, you might lose your job. So that for him is a line in the sand. I can work in a system that tolerates same-sex marriage, I can work within that, maybe with a broken heart, but I can work within that. But if you ask me to celebrate that which God has condemned, that's a line that I cannot cross, and I'm willing to lose my job because nothing means more to me than integrity and God's word. See, Americans, and I am an American, we want to hang on to our jobs we want, well, I have a family to feed. I know you have a family to feed. But throughout history, God has proven to be true and faithful to his people who paid the highest price for commitment and integrity for him. God is able to do it. During Nazi Germany, that was the big argument. I have to join the Reich. If our kids don't join Hitler's youth, 
We, I, I was in uh, eastern Germany before the wall fell, and I was talking to a pastor there, and he said, here's what's happened under communism. Communists came to parents, and they said, look, if, you're, if you don't join the communist party and have your children in communist youth organizations, you know, you aren't going to get any jobs, your kids aren't going to be able to go to school, all this pressure. So what did most couples and most families do? They bowed to the pressure. There were some who said, we will not bow. Through hardship, difficulty, and tears, God was faithful to them in that decision. And I say to you today that God is faithful to us and will be even when we make hard decisions in his favor. Let us not be shamed into silence. Let us not be told in an age of grievance, and that is true, an age where everybody is offended by someone. Did you know that in New York you can be fined up to $250,000 if you call somebody by the wrong name? Like, let's suppose, instead of calling Caitlyn Jenner, Jenner, Jenner Bruce, you were to call him um, Bruce instead of Caitlin. Do I have that straight? It's a little confusing. You could be fined. Everybody is offended. My dear friend, the cross of Jesus Christ is an offense. And you and I, oftentimes in our churches, we're doing all that we possibly can to take away the offense by exalting human nature, by saying we are so loving we don't stand against anything. We are just loving and um, we won't get involved in any of the issues and we won't stand for Christ where we are because, after all, we will be shamed. The purpose of my message tonight is to force you and me to think, where is our line? I was going to tell you the story of some martyrs, but I won't do that. I already mentioned us. But I'm going to tell you the story of one martyr. In China, during the days of the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxers came to a Christian school, and they put a cross at the step of the school, and they told the students this. If when you leave the school you step on the cross, which means that you despise it, you can live. But if you walk around the cross in honor of it, uh, you will die. The first eight students stood on the cross, and they were allowed to live. But number nine was a girl. And she prayed that God would give her the grace to do what she should. And she walked around the cross in honor of it. She would not step on it, and she was shot. And all the other students in the school took her example. Was she a winner? (laughs) Not in this life. But you don't have to win in this life in order to win in the life to come. And my heart for you today is to simply answer this question. If it is true that life is short and eternity is long, and I want to be a winner in eternity, what price am I willing to pay for the integrity of the gospel and the integrity of my conscience as the state becomes God and constantly wants to erode our freedoms? Huge issues. And I leave you with that challenge today. Chrysostom, sometimes pronounced Chrysostom, 
I always end this message with a quote from him, but I don't have the quote right here, but he's standing in his church in Constantinople in the early centuries, and he was uh, exiled. And I'm going to, from memory, give you an essence of what he said. Okay, imagine now this is his last sermon because he's being exiled, and he's talking to the congregation one last time. He says something very interesting. Actually, if I might humbly say, I think it's right here. Maybe I can find it real fast. Anyway, he stands up to speak and he says, uh, in effect, to the people, be of good cheer. What he's doing is he's talking about the fact that, um, oh, here it is, as God would have it. Numerous are the waves and the great tossing of the sea, but we have no need to fear going down, for we stand upon the rock. Let the ocean rage as it will. It is powerless to break the rock. Let the waves roll. They cannot sink the bark of Jesus. Tell me, what shall we fear, death? Well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Exile? Well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. Confiscation of property? Well, we brought nothing into this world, and it is clear that we can take nothing away from it. I despise what the world fears, and I hold its goods in derision. I do not fear poverty, nor do I desire riches. I am not afraid of death. I do not pray to live, unless it, of course, is is for your good. This is why I speak of what is now taking place and exhort you. Be of good cheer. God has brought us to this moment. You could have been born earlier, later. God says, you are this generation to represent me at this hour of history. And I'm encouraging you to pray and to seek God's wisdom as to how you can do that. Let's all stand, shall we? I want to pray for you. Father, our hearts are heavy tonight because we know that there are parents here who have to make decisions regarding the education of their children. We know that there are teachers and people in banks and offices and hospitals have to make decisions regarding matters of conscience. For some, the price might be high. And we don't speak glibly, Lord, because we know we are all so weak, so prone to rationalization. We ask that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we may learn a lesson. You're able to deliver us, but even if you don't, we simply will not bow. Bless these dear people. Bless the pastors of the church, its outgoing ministry, its ongoing ministry in this community, we ask in your blessed name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.